Good morning, everybody. Thanks to the uh, opening team for bringing us together in uh, worship and preparing our hearts. And uh, thank you for coming out this morning as well. It uh, gives me somebody to speak to and to speak with. I work by myself and I'm often talking to myself, so it's kind of nice to have somebody here to share this with. Somebody once, somebody once told me, he said, it's okay to talk to yourself as long as you don't get an answer, but I figure, what's the point in talking to yourself if you don't get an answer? <laughs> this morning we're continuing on in the book of John, the Gospel of John. Phil uh, looked at the first half of chapter 13 last week, and today we're going to look at the second half of chapter 13, verses 18 to 38. So you can follow along there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are brown pew Bibles uh, stuck in the, the chairs in front of you in places. You can help yourself to them. I don't have the page number, but just nudge somebody and I'm sure they can help you find it. But there is a, a novel that was written by Charles Dickens. You've probably all heard of it, A Tale of Two Cities. And the opening paragraph starts off this way. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Well, this morning we have a tale. Instead of a tale of two cities, it's a tale of two characters, two souls, Judas Iscariot and Simon Peter. Now, John devoted one-third of his gospel to the last 24-hour period that Jesus spent here on this earth. The next five chapters, chapters 13 to 17, deal with one specific period or circumstance within that 24 hours. In his conversation around the Passover feast, Jesus was directing his dialogue to his disciples, and as he taught them, he answered their questions. And he taught them, but he didn't teach them the way that he was teaching the world around him when he was ministering throughout the, uh, um, the land of Israel. But rather, in this intimate relationship with his disciples, this evening, he avoided speaking to them in parables, but instead he gave his disciples last-minute instructions, he taught them theology, he gave them encouragement, and he prayed for them and with them. This morning's message is one of betrayal and denial doesn't sound like much of an encouraging message as we approach the Christmas season. But just as the birth of Christ ushered in a new covenant between God and his chosen people, a covenant of grace, so chapter 13 ushers in a new period between Jesus and his disciples as Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for the separation physically that was about to occur between them. It was a separation that had to occur for it to be a fulfillment of prophecy. All four Gospels include the accounts of Judas's betrayal and the prediction of, Jesus, of uh, Peter's denial. This morning I'll be referring to all four Gospels, so by all means uh, keep your fingers handy as we go along. But let's jump right in. John chapter 13, verses 18 to 30 to start with. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. 
But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Jesus took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus had said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Now Jesus, being omniscient, that is, all-knowing, not only knew about what Jesus was going to do, but he's known all along how Judas was plotting and how he was plotting it with the Pharisees. See, Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe the pact that Judas made with the Pharisees. Prior to the Passover, Judas went to the Pharisees who were looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. But they wanted to do it quietly. They didn't want to stir up the crowds who just not that long ago were welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna. They wanted to get rid of him quietly. But they didn't have a plan. But here Judas came up to them and presented them with what they must have thought was the perfect plan. What better way to get rid of Jesus than to use one of his own disciples. Mark and Luke's accounts say that the Pharisees promised to give Judas money, and Matthew actually gives the amount, 30 pieces of silver. That was a substantial amount of money, but it must have seemed like a bargain to the Pharisees for what they were getting in return. All that was left was to wait for the plan to uh, see itself come to fruition. It's important to note that the Pharisees did not approach Judas. Judas approached them. It's easy to understand why the Pharisees hated Jesus and why they wanted to get rid of them. Jesus was a threat to their power. They tried to discredit Jesus publicly, but over and over again, they failed. The Pharisees were getting desperate, and they were willing to do anything to get rid of Jesus, even to commit murder. But what prompted Judas to betray Jesus? Judas, along with the other disciples, had an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Judas saw the miracles. The disciples were there, was there when, Jude, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And he called out to Lazarus from the grave, Come out! He was there. Surely that must have left an impression on him. But impressions don't always turn into faith and following. When God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, at no other time in history did God have such an intimate relationship with his chosen people. He was with them by day 
through a cloud. He was with them by night through a pillar of fire. He protected them. He fed them. He gave them water when they were thirsty. Even their clothes did not wear out for those 40 years that they were in the desert. But even though God was in the midst of them, they rejected God. Their hearts were hard. When God brought them right up to the edge of the promised land, the land that they can see, that they had sent spies in, and they came back with reports of the land is fertile, it's good. Look at the grapes. Look at all the harvest that there is. But their hearts were weak. Their hearts were hard. They said, how can we take this land when it was filled with such giants among us? They lost their faith if they ever had it to begin with at this point. And because of their hard hearts and their lack of faith, they were forced to wander 40 years in total in the desert until that original generation had passed away. I've heard people say to me, if only I could see God, if only I could see Jesus Christ, then I would believe. Well, seeing might be believing in the sense that, yes, they might believe in God's existence and Jesus Christ's existence. But on the contrary, you must first have faith and then you can see the power of Jesus Christ in action. Even if that faith is just as small as a mustard seed, the Bible says, God can do mighty things with you. Did Judas lack that faith in Jesus Christ? Did Judas possess a spiritual blindness that was caused by his own greed or some other sin that prevented him from having that personal relationship the way that the other disciples had with Jesus? Judas's rejection of Jesus would certainly have made it easier for Satan to tempt him. I don't know exactly how Satan would have entered Judas, but according to John's account, In Luke's account, it happened more than once. This wasn't just something that happened that night at the Passover. All of a sudden, Judas had this idea. This is something that had been going on for days and weeks and perhaps months or even years in the making. However it happened, Satan was able to use Judas in a plot to have Jesus handed over to the Pharisees who would ultimately see to his crucifixion. Now it's interesting here, when you start to think about it, that Satan, as powerful as he is, and the Bible does say he is a powerful adversary to God, but Satan does not possess the omniscience or all-knowing that God possesses. See, as far back as John chapter 6, Jesus was hinting at what was to come. John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71 read, Then Jesus replied, I have not chosen you, the twelve... Sorry, let me start again. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. If Satan knew that God's will was for the events to unfold as they had been happening, that they were in fact ordered, prophesied about, and that they had to occur in order for sin to be atoned for, Do you think Satan would have followed through with his plan? If that were the case, I don't think 
Satan would have targeted Judas to help God carry out his plan for humanity. It would make no sense for Satan to want to aid God in his plan for our salvation. But that's what was happening here. All that was about to occur was prophesied in advance, and not even Satan had figured it out. Truly, Satan is no match for God. Sometimes we forget that, and we need a reminder of it. There's a question. It's a difficult question when it comes to the relationship between Jesus and Judas. Why would God use Judas this way? Or why would God even allow Satan to enter Judas? Wasn't there another way that God could have provided for his plan of salvation to occur? There's actually three questions, but they're all kind of the same in the end. I've been thinking about these questions for months, and it all started when I saw my name next to these uh, verses on the speaking schedule when it came up. And as hard as I've looked for the answer to these questions, I've come to the conclusion, the same way that I have at other times in the past when I've faced similar questions, who am I to know the mind of God? It's not a conclusion that I'm alone in. In Paul's doxology to the Romans, in chapter 11, he writes, Who has known the mind of the Lord? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul quotes from Isaiah when he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Paul was explaining to the followers in Corinth that while their spiritual wisdom, the spiritual wisdom that we too possess, comes from the Lord, We don't have that same wisdom and knowledge that possesses God. He gives us little snippets of what he knows, enough for us to follow a life and lead a life that's honoring to him, but in no way can we ever grasp, let alone understand, how God created the universe. With that in mind, though, we can look at some of the facts surrounding Judas and his relationship to Christ. You see, the Bible never says that God turned Judas away from being a follower of Jesus to being a follower of Satan. Judas was with Jesus and the other disciples for many months. He witnessed what the other disciples witnessed. He heard the same words that Jesus was teaching to those around him of a new covenant, a new repentance, a new relationship. But yet he still hardened his heart to the point that Satan was able to tempt him, to the point of betraying an innocent man unto death. But this didn't happen all at once. Satan was working on Judas for quite a while, as you can read in the four Gospels account of this. The biggest thing that stands out to me, though, is the fact that Jesus was grieved by what Judas was going to do. Jesus was honestly sorrowful for the path that Judas was taken, even though he knew it was one that had to occur. John records that Jesus was troubled in spirit when he testified, someone is going to betray me. The other Gospels record Jesus' words, woe to the man who will betray me. Now that word woe is more than just a warning of the consequences of what somebody's sins would lead to. It's also an expression of sadness that goes along with that warning. 
See, woe is not a word that you use, for example, if, say, you're looking for revenge on somebody. You're not going to say to somebody, woe to you, I'm going to get even with you for what you did to me. No, woe, even just the word itself, has a connotation of sadness to it. And that's what Jesus was expressing when he kept pointing out, someone is going to betray me. Jesus was genuinely sad for what Judas was about to do. We would not feel the same way if one of the Pharisees had found a way to have Jesus betrayed. We kind of have a different connection with the Pharisees. We've known all along they were against Jesus. So we would expect them to be a part of this plot. But one of Jesus' own disciples, that raises a lot of questions. But who am I to know the mind of God? Matthew describes how after the events unfolded, Judas had a change of heart. He was genuinely remorseful for what he had done. And his remorse led him to commit suicide. It was that deep. I can't help wonder if the remorse that Judas had, instead of being expressed in suicide, was brought to God in repentance. What would the outcome have been for Judas at that point? The lesson for us today is to always be on guard so that we don't ever give Satan a chance to enter us so that we should get caught up in circumstances that lead to us betraying Christ. If it could happen to Judas, it can happen to any of us. But happily, there is a vaccine to inoculate you against such a threat. And for that, I prescribe, you take a daily dose of Bible reading followed by a shot of prayer to protect you and keep you safe, followed by a booster shot of humble obedience to God. Well, that's Judas. Let's take a look at Peter. Kind of a similar fellow, but his story is much different and his outcome is much different. Continuing on, John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, just as I have told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. After Judas left, Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for what was to unfold that night and the following day. If you remember last week, Phil, as part of his message, revolved around a hands-on example of what it meant to be a servant. When Christ wrapped a towel around his feet and took on the job that only the lowliest servant of a household would perform. In verse 34, Jesus gives his disciples a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By doing so, others will know that you are followers of me. 
This command follows us into the 21st century as well. How can we show love to the community around us if we don't first show love to those of us who are our Christian brothers and sisters? That love that Jesus was talking about here is the love that leads to servanthood. Are you willing to get down and get dirty and wash somebody's feet, figuratively speaking? Our society doesn't put much worth on that kind of servanthood. Oh, we celebrate and acknowledge the work of politicians, sports athletes, society leaders, those who have done things that uh, probably none of us could even do, let alone will ever do. But that night, Christ put the emphasis and worth on the lowliest of jobs. Matthew 20, verses 26 and 28 reads, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But Peter still didn't get it. Maybe the others didn't as well. Maybe Peter was just verbalizing what everybody in that room was thinking that night. You see, just a short time earlier, Jesus washed Peter's feet. And it was a good thing, because Peter was about to put his foot in his mouth again. Peter was so sure of his love and dedication for Jesus Christ that he confidently stated that he would lay down his life for Christ. He would do whatever it takes to follow Christ. Peter wasn't entirely wrong in the statement. For when Jesus was arrested, Peter drew his sword. He was ready to put up a fight. But that courage and that faith soon withered away as the events unfolded. Would our reaction be the same as Peter's if we were in his shoes? We all like to think that we would follow Christ to whatever end that meets. And there are those who have shown that they are prepared and that indeed they did. But the reality is, we don't know ourselves unless we ever find ourselves in that situation. Professionals train for emergencies. We've got a firefighting training center here at the college. They have a building that uh, is made of concrete, and they'll light fires inside, and the, and the uh, firefighters in training will go in and battle the blaze. But it's a simulation. They don't know how they would react in an actual burning building that has the risk of crumbling around them until they get into that situation. Police officers go through training scenarios of how to deal with high-risk and dangerous situations. But until they're ever faced standing toe-to-toe with someone who is threatening their lives, they don't know how they will react. Pilots train in simulators for all kinds of emergencies. But until you're in an actual emergency that's threatening your life, you don't know if your training will kick in or if you'll panic and freeze. Just as Judas felt remorse for what he did, so did Peter. Luke chapter 22, verses 60 to 62. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the cock crows today. <coughs> you would disown me three times. <coughs> That was a bitter reminder of that prophecy to come. 
And I can just imagine Peter being hit with that reality. It must have hit him like a two-by-four when he remembered those words that Jesus had spoke to him and what his actions did. Not just once, not just in a split second, but three times he denied knowing Christ. He wanted to be near him. He wanted to be with him. But he also feared the situation around him. Now later on, Jesus would reinstate Peter with his trust. And Peter would go on to be a strong witness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now why were the outcomes between Judas and Peter different? Judas felt remorse for what he did. Peter wept bitterly when he realized the prophecy came true. Why were the outcomes differently? I believe it comes down to repentance. I believe Peter had a repentant heart for his lack of trust and faith, whereas Judas, even though in his remorse, his heart was still hard towards the message of Jesus Christ. That's probably what's holding back a lot of people from enjoying a life that is Christ-filled. God knows we won't be perfect. In fact, he uses our imperfections for his glory. But it's our heart he uses. And it's our heart that's for him, not against him, that he can use. Peter was a strong warrior for God, not because he was perfect and because he never made mistakes. Peter was a strong warrior for God because he allowed God to use his imperfections for his glory. I'll close this morning with some verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. Fairly familiar. It speaks of the fragility of the vessels that we walk around in. It speaks about how God can use these vessels and how he can use them in a way that sometimes is quite miraculous. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. A tale of two cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Many seasons will go through our lives. We may find ourselves in situations where we are those two cities at the same time, as Satan battles with Christ within us sometimes through temptations. But take heart, because just as Christ has overcome the world, so we can overcome it too. So I'll invite the worship team to come up for our final hymn, and uh, then I'll close in prayer afterwards. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that we've spent together. And Lord, may we all come to you in humble obedience, and may we be your servants that you, through us, Lord, your power may shine forth to those that we come into contact with. May they see by our actions that we are your disciples. May they see by our actions that it's your love that we show to those around us. Father, as we approach this Christmas season and hearts at least somewhat 
are open to your word. May there be somebody out there, Lord. May there be somebody out there this Christmas season whose best Christmas present ever is to receive you into their life. And we pray for these things in your name. Amen.